0: CHAPTER 16 OF ON SECRET SERVICE, DETECTIVE MYSTERY STORIES BASED ON REAL CASES SOLVED BY GOVERNMENT AGENTS BY WILLIAM NELSON TAFT THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN CHAPTER 16 AFTER SEVEN YEARS Bill Quinn was disgusted, someone evidently afflicted with an ingrowing sense of humor, had sent him the prospectus of a school which professed to be able to teach budding aspirants the art of becoming a successful detective for the sum of twenty-five dollars, and Quinn couldn't appreciate the humor. "'How to become a detective in ten lessons?' he snorted. "'It only takes one for the man who's got the right stuff in him, and the man that hasn't better stay out of the game altogether.' "'Well,' i retorted anxious to stir up any kind of an argument that might lead to one of quinn's tales about the exploits of uncle sam's sleuths just what does it take to make a detective it was a moment or two before quinn replied then there are only three qualities necessary he replied common sense the power of observation and perseverance given these three with possibly a dash of luck thrown in for good measure, and you'll have a crime expert who could stand the heroes of fiction on their heads. Take Larry Simmons, for example. No one would ever have accused him of having the qualifications of a detective any more than they would have suspected him of being one. But Larry drew a good-sized salary from the Bureau of Pensions because he possessed the three qualities I mentioned. He had the common sense of a physician, the observation of a trained newspaper reporter, and the perseverance of a bulldog. Once he sunk his teeth in a problem he never let loose, which was the reason that very few people ever put anything over on the pension bureau, as long as Larry was on the job. That cap up there and Quinn pointed to a stained and dilapidated bit of headgear, which hung upon the wall of his den, is a memento of one of Simmons's cases. The man who bought it would tell you that I'm dead right when I say that Larry was persevering. That's putting it mildly. Quite a while back, continued Quinn, picking up the thread of his story, there was a man out in St. Joseph, Missouri, named Dave Holden, No one appeared to know where he came from, and, as he conducted himself quietly and didn't mix in with his neighbor's affairs, no one cared very much. Holden hadn't been in town more than a couple of weeks when one of the older inhabitants happened to inquire if he were any kin to old Dave Holden, who had died only a year or two before. "'No,' said Holden, "'I don't believe I am.' "'My folks all came from Ohio, and I understand that this Holden was a Missourian.' "'That's right,' agreed the other. "'And a queer character, too. Guess he was pretty nigh the only man that fought on the Union side in the Civil War that didn't stick the government for a pension. Had it coming to him, too, cause he was a captain when the war ended.' but he always said he didn't consider that uncle sam owed him anything for doing his duty spite of the protest of his friends dave wouldn't ever sign a pension blank either a few more questions carefully directed gave holden the history of his namesake and that night he lay awake trying to figure out whether the plan which had popped into his head was safe it promised some easy money BUT THERE WAS THE ELEMENT OF RISK TO BE CONSIDERED. AFTER ALL, HE CONCLUDED, I WON'T BE DOING ANYTHING THAT ISN'T STRICTLY WITHIN THE LAW. MY NAME IS DAVID HOLDEN, JUST AS THE OLD MAN'S WAS. THE WORST THAT THEY CAN DO IS TURN DOWN THE APPLICATION. I WON'T BE COMMITTING FORGERY OR ANYTHING OF THE KIND, AND MAYBE IT'LL SLIP THROUGH, WHICH WOULD MEAN A PILE OF MONEY because they'll kick in with all that accumulated during the past fifty years. So it was that, in the course of time, an application was filed at the Bureau of Pensions in Washington for a pension due David Holden of St. Joseph, Missouri, who had fought in the Civil War with the rank of captain. But when the application had been sent over to the War Department, so that it might be compared with the records on file there, It came back with the red inked notation that Captain David Holden had died two years before, giving the precise date of his demise as evidence. The moment that the document reached the desk of the supervisor of pensions, he pressed one of the little pearl buttons in front of him and asked that Larry Simmons be sent in. When Larry arrived, the chief handed him the application without a word. "'Right. I'll look into this,' said Larry, folding the paper and slipping it into the pocket of his coat. "'Look into it,' echoed the supervisor. "'You'll do more than that. You'll locate this man Holden, or whatever his right name is, and see that he gets all that's coming to him. There've been too many of these cases lately.' Apparently, people think that all they have to do is to file an application for a pension and then go off and spend the money. Catch the first train for St. Joe and wire me when you've landed your man. The district attorney will attend to the rest of the matter. The location of David Holden, as Simmons found, was not the simplest of jobs. The pension applicant, being comparatively a newcomer, was not well known in town, and Simmons finally had to fall back upon the expedient of watching the post office box which Holden had given as his address, framing a dummy letter so that the suspect might not think that he was being watched. Holden, however, had rented the box for the sole purpose of receiving mail from the pension bureau. He had given the number to no one else, and the fact that the box contained what appeared to be an advertisement from a clothing store made him stop and wonder by that time however simmons had him well in sight and followed him to the boarding house on the outskirts of the town where he was staying that evening while he was still wondering at the enterprise of a store that could obtain a post office box number from a government bureau at washington the solution of the mystery came to him in a decidedly unexpected manner the house in which holden was staying was old-fashioned one of the kind that are heated theoretically at least by registers open gratings in the wall holden's room was directly over the parlor on the first floor and the shaft which carried the hot air made an excellent sound transmitter So it happened that Simmons, after having made a number of inquiries around town about the original Dave Holden, called at the boarding house that night to discover what the landlady knew about the other man of the same name who was seated in the room above. Suddenly, like a voice from nowhere, came the statement in a high-pitched feminine voice, I really don't know anything about him at all. "'Mr. Holden came here about six weeks ago "'and asked me to take him in to board. "'He seemed to be a very nice, quiet gentleman "'who was willing to pay his rent in advance. "'So I let him have one of the best rooms in the house.' "'At the mention of his name, Holden listened intently. "'Who was inquiring about him, and why? "'There was only a confused bumble.' "'apparently a man's reply, pitched in a low tone, "'and then the voice of the landlady again "'came clearly through the register. "'Oh, I'm sure he wouldn't do anything like that. "'Mr. Holden is... "'But that was all that the pension applicant waited for. "'Moving with the rapidity of a frightened animal, "'he secured one or two articles of value from his dresser, "'crammed a hat into his pocket slipped on a raincoat, and vaulted out of the window, alighting on the sloping roof of a shed just below. Before he had quitted the room, however, he had caught the words, "'Arrest on a charge of attempting to obtain money under false pretenses.' Some two minutes later there was a knock on his door, and a voice demanded admittance. There was no reply. Again the demand— followed by a rattling of the doorknob and a tentative shake of the door. In all, it was probably less than five minutes after Larry Simmons had entered the parlor before he had burst in the door of Holden's room. But the bird had flown, and the open window pointed to the direction of his flight. Unfortunately for the operative The night was dark, and the fugitive was decidedly more familiar with the surrounding country than Larry was. By the time he had secured the assistance of the police, half an hour had elapsed, and there weren't even any telltale footprints to show in which direction the missing man had gone. "'See that men are placed as to guard the railroad station,' Simmons directed, "'and pass the word up and down the line,' that a medium-sized man about thirty-five years of age with black hair and a rather ruddy complexion a man wanted by the government on a charge of false pretenses is trying to make his escape if anyone reports him let me know at once that under the circumstances was really all that larry could do it ought to be an easy matter to locate the fugitive he figured and it would only be a question of a few days before he was safely in jail. Bright and early the next morning, the operative was awakened by a bellboy, who informed him that the chief of police would like to see him. "'Show him in,' said Larry, fully expecting to see the chief enter with a handcuffed prisoner. But the head of the police force came in alone, carrying a bundle, which he gravely presented to Simmons what's this inquired the pension agent all that's left of your friend holden was the reply one of my men reported late last night that he had heard a splash in the river as though someone had jumped off the wharf but he couldn't find out anything more to tell the truth he didn't look very hard because we had our hands full with a robbery of green's clothing store "'Someone broke in there, and—' "'Yes, but what about Holden?' Simmons interrupted. "'Guess you'll have to drag the river for him,' answered the chief. "'We found his coat and vest and raincoat in the dock this morning, "'and on top of them was this note addressed to you.' "'The note, as Larry found an instant later, read, "'I'd rather die in the river than go to jail.' "'Tell your boss that he can pay two pensions now, "'one for each of the Dave Holdens.' "'The signature, almost illegible, "'was that of David Holden, number two. "'No doubt that your man heard the splash "'when Holden went overboard last night?' "'inquired the operative. "'Not the least in the world. "'He told me about it, "'but I didn't connect it with the man you were after, "'and besides, I was too busy right then to give it much thought. Any chance of recovering the body? Mighty little at this time of the year. The current's good and strong, and the chances are that he won't turn up this side of the Mississippi, if then. It was only by accident that we found his cap. It had lodged under the dock, and we fished it out less than half an hour ago and the chief pointed to a water-soaked piece of cloth which Simmons recognized as the one which Holden had been wearing the evening before. "'Well, I don't suppose there's anything more that we can do,' admitted Larry. "'I'd like to have the river dragged as much as possible, though I agree with you that the chances for recovering the body are very slim. Will you look after that?' sure i will and anything else you want done the chief was nothing if not obliging a fact which simmons incorporated in his official report which he filed a few days later a report which stated that david holden wanted on a charge of attempting to obtain money under false pretenses had committed suicide by drowning rather than submit to arrest the body has not been recovered the report admitted, but this is not to be considered unusual at this time of the year when the current is very strong. The note left by the fugitive is attached. Back from Washington came the wire. "'Better luck next time. Anyhow, Holden won't bother us again.' "'If this were a moving picture,' Quinn continued, after a pause, there would be a subtitle here announcing the fact that seven years are supposed to elapse there also probably would be a highly decorated explanatory title informing the audience that uncle sam never forgets nor forgives a fact that is so perfectly true that it's a marvel that people persist in trying to beat the government then the scene of the film would shift to seattle washington They would have to cut back a little to make it clear that Larry Simmons had, in the meantime, left the Pension Bureau and entered the employment of the post office department, being desirous of a little more excitement and a few more thrills than his former job afforded. But he was still working for Uncle Sam, and his memory, like that of his employer, was long and tenacious one of the minor cases which had been bothering the department for some time past was that of a ring of fortune tellers who securing information in devious ways would pretend that it had come to them from the spirit world and use it for purposes which closely approximated blackmail simmons being in san francisco at the time was ordered to proceed to seattle and look into the matter posing as a gentleman of leisure with plenty of money and but little care as to the way in which he spent it it wasn't long before he was steered into what appeared to be the very centre of the ring the residence of madame ahara who professed to be able to read the stars commune with spirits and otherwise obtain information of an occult type there larry went through all the usual stages palmistry spiritualism and clairvoyance and chuckled when he found after his third visit that his pocket had been picked of a letter purporting to contain the facts about an escapade in which he had been mixed up a few years ago the letter of course was a plant placed there for the sole purpose of providing a lead for madame and her associates to follow and they weren't long in taking the tip THE VERY NEXT AFTERNOON, THE GOVERNMENT AGENT RECEIVED A TELEPHONE CALL, NOTIFYING HIM THAT MADAM HAD SOME NEWS OF GREAT IMPORTANCE WHICH SHE DESIRED TO IMPART, INFORMATION WHICH HAD COME TO HER FROM THE OTHER WORLD, AND IN WHICH SHE FELT CERTAIN HE WOULD BE INTERESTED. LARRY ASKED IF HE MIGHT BRING A FRIEND WITH HIM, BUT THE REQUEST, AS HE HAD EXPECTED, WAS PROMPTLY REFUSED. The would-be blackmailers were too clever to allow first-hand evidence to be produced against them. They wished to deal only with the principals, or, as madame informed him over the phone, the message was of such nature that only he should hear it. "'Very well,' replied Simmons. "'I'll be there at eleven this evening.' It was not his purpose to force the issue at this time. In fact, He planned to submit to the first demand for money and trust to the confidence which this would inspire to render the blackmailers less cautious in the future. But something occurred which upset the entire scheme, and for a time at least threatened disaster to the post office schemes. Thinking that it might be well to look the ground over before dark, larry strolled out to madame ahara's about five o'clock in the afternoon and took up his post on the opposite side of the street studying the house from every angle while he was standing there a man came out a man who was dressed in the height of fashion but whose face was somehow vaguely familiar the tightly waxed mustache and the iron gray goatee seemed out of place for Simmons felt that the last time he had seen the man, he had been clean-shaven. Where was it, he thought, as he kept the man in sight, though on the opposite side of the street? New York? No. Washington? Hardly. St. Louis? No, it was somewhere where he was wearing a cap. A cap that was water-stained and i've got it in st joseph the man who committed suicide the night i went to arrest him for attempting to defraud the pension bureau it's he sure as shooting but just as simmons started across the street the traffic cop raised his arm and when the apparently interminable stream of machines had passed the man with the mustache was nowhere to be seen he had probably slipped into one of the nearby office buildings but which that was a question which worried larry for a moment or two then he came to the conclusion that there was no sense in trying to find his man at this moment the very fact that he was in seattle was enough the police could find him with little difficulty but what had holden been doing at the clairvoyance had he fallen into the power of the ring or was it possible that he was one of the blackmailers himself the more larry thought about the matter the more he came to the conclusion that here was an opportunity to kill two birds with a single stone to drive home at least the entering wedge of the campaign against the clairvoyants, and at the same time to land the man who had eluded him seven years before The plan which he finally evolved was daring, but he realized that the element of time was essential. Holden must not be given another opportunity to slip through the net. That night, when Larry kept his appointment at Madame's, he saw to it that a cordon of police was thrown around the entire block, with instructions to allow no one to leave until after a prearranged signal. "'Don't prevent anyone from coming into the house,' Simmons directed. "'But see that not a soul gets away from it. "'Also, you might be on the lookout for trouble. "'The crowd's apt to get nasty, and we can't afford to take chances with them.'" A tall, dark-skinned man, attired in an Arabian burnoose and wearing a turban, answered the ring at the door, precisely as Larry anticipated for the stage was always set to impress visitors. Madame herself never appeared in the richly decorated room where the crystal-gazing séances were held, preferring to remain in the background and to allow a girl, who went by the name of Yvette, to handle visitors, the explanation being that Madame receives the spirit messages and transmits them to Yvette, her assistant. Simmons therefore knew that, instead of dealing with an older and presumably more experienced woman, he would only have to handle a girl, and it was upon this that he placed his principal reliance. Everything went along strictly according to schedule. Yvette, seated on the opposite side of a large crystal ball, in which she read strange messages from the other world visions transmitted from the cellar by means of a cleverly constructed series of mirrors told the operative everything that had been outlined in the letter taken from his pocket on the preceding night adding additional touches founded on facts which larry had been careless enough to let slip during his previous visits then she concluded with a very thinly veiled thread of blackmail if the visitor did not care to kick in with a certain sum of money larry listened to the whole palaver in silence but his eyes were busy trying to pierce the dim light in which the room was shrouded so far as he could see the door through which he had entered formed the only means of getting into the room but there were a number of rugs and draperies upon the walls any one of which might easily mask a doorway When the girl had finished, the operative leaned forward and hitched his chair around so that he could speak in a whisper. "'If you know what's good for you,' he cautioned, "'don't move. I've got you covered in the first place, and, secondly, there's a solid cordon of police around this house. Careful, not a sound. I'm not after you. I want the people who are behind you.' Madame and her associates, this blackmailing game has gone about far enough, but I'll see that you get off with a suspended sentence, if you do as I tell you. If not—and the very abruptness with which he stopped made the threat all the more convincing. "'What—what do you want me to do?' stammered the girl, her voice barely audible. "'Turn state's evidence and tip me off to everyone who's in on this thing,' was Larry's reply, couched in the lowest of tones. "'There's not a chance of escape for any of you, so you might as well do it and get it over with. "'Besides that, I want to know where I can find a man with a waxed mustache and iron-gray goatee who left this house at ten minutes past five this afternoon.'" "'Madame!' exclaimed the girl. Davidson! Yes, Madame and Davidson, if that's the name he goes by now. It was Holden the last time I saw him. He—and the girl's voice was a mere breath—he is Madame. What? Yes, there is no Madame Ahara. Davidson runs the whole thing. He is—but at that moment— one of the rugs on the wall which larry was facing swung outward and a man sprang into the room a man whose face was purple with rage and who leaped sidewise as he saw larry's hand snap an automatic into view above the pedestal on which the crystal ball reposed in a flash simmons recognized two things his danger and the fact that the man who had just entered was Holden, alias Davidson, blackmailer and potential thief. Before the government agent had time to aim, the head of the clairvoyant ring fired. But his bullet, instead of striking Larry, shattered the crystal ball into fragments, and the room was plunged into total darkness. In spite of the fact that he knew the shot would bring speedy relief from outside the house, Simmons determined to capture his man single-handed and alive. Half leaping, half falling from the chair in which he had been seated, the operative sprang forward in an attempt to nail his man, while the latter was still dazed by the darkness. But his foot, catching in one of the thick rugs which carpeted the floor, tripped him and he fell, a bullet from the other's revolver plowing through the fleshy part of his arm. The flash, however, showed him the position of his adversary, and it was the work of only a moment to slip forward and seize the blackmailer around the waist, his right hand gripping the man's wrist and forcing it upward so that he was powerless to use his revolver. For a full minute they rustled in the inky darkness, oblivious to the fact that the sound of blows on the outer door indicated the arrival of reinforcements. Then suddenly Larry let go of the blackmailer's arm and, whirling him rapidly around, secured a half-Nelson that threatened to dislocate his neck. Drop it, he snarled. Drop that gun before I wring your head off and the muffled thud, as the revolver struck the floor, was the signal that Holden had surrendered. A moment later, the light in the center of the room was snapped on, and the police sergeant inquired if Larry needed any assistance. "'No,' replied Simmons, grimly. "'But you might lend me a pair of bracelets. This bird got away from me once some seven years ago, and I'm not taking any more chances.' End of chapter 16